thank you for those remarks. And I'm going to talk about higher education in which we see some parallel developments over history. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, really a, a struggle that's been going on since this nation's founding between black people seeking and even demanding uh, a right to educate themselves and educate their children and the forces of white supremacy through law and coercive power uh, denying them uh, that opportunity. Uh, and uh, and it, it ebbs and flows depending on which, which of those two forces is making progress. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, the majority tends to, uh, tends to prevail. And uh, we're at an important point in our history. The um, Supreme Court is considering affirmative action, and it's very likely to exclude the use of race to admit uh, uh, students of color, uh, despite their uh, significant underrepresentation. We're all, also at a point with a movement across the country, including in this state, uh, to ban discussions of race and racial history and racial studies. Uh, in school, uh, and both of these, again, reflect historical struggles of excluding black people from attending school and uh, excluding uh, the teaching of, uh, of matters that affect black people, or at least teaching them in an accurate way. So, uh, you know, I'm covering a lot of history here, but um, I'll start with just with talking about kind of access to higher education. So following the Civil War, I'll just go back that far, um, you know, we're aware from reading about, you know, the road to Brown of the terribly inferior quality of uh, secondary schools and elementary schools. But, uh, well, both before and after the Civil War, for uh, the great majority of black people, there was no school at all they could attend for higher education. Uh, in most states, especially in the South, there was no higher education available for black people. Uh, at least not of a significant quality, like doctoral studies were unavailable to the extent there were uh, some uh, opportunities. Uh, they tend to focus on agriculture and vocational training and teaching training. And a lot of that came from the emergence in the late 1800s of uh, black colleges, uh, uh, some from private philanthropy and organizations, some from federal funding. Uh, but again, as you can imagine, they tended to be far and few between compared to the number of uh, white institutions. Uh, and again, the quality of what they offered uh, was significantly uh, less. So, you know, flagship schools and other best schools in, the, in, in most states were reserved uh, with essentially 100% affirmative action quotas for, uh, for white people. Uh, we see pushback and progress, especially uh, beginning in the, uh, well, with the founding of the NAACP in, in uh, 1909. Uh, and then uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, who, who became special counsel uh, in 1934. Uh, he founded the NAACP's, um, essentially, well, Thurgood Marshall officially did, but he created uh, Charles Hamilton Houston a clinic at Howard where he trained people to become lawyers to challenge uh, uh, racial injustice, Thurgood Marshall being one of his most uh, well-known uh, students. Uh, and they began challenging segregation in a variety of contexts, but including targeting separate but equal schools. Uh, and some of the uh, major victories they had, um, University versus Murray was uh, in Maryland in 1936, uh, which admitted the first black student to the University of Maryland. 
uh, Gaines versus Canada in 1938. That was a Supreme Court case. Uh, the other one was, was a lower court case in which the Supreme Court held that states couldn't uh, pay to send a black student to another state where they could get a higher education. They had to provide it in the state that they did, which encouraged schools to create, uh, states to create some schools, but again, they usually weren't nearly of the quality of the, their flagship schools. Uh, by 1950, you had a pair of uh, important cases, uh, Sweat versus Painter, uh, which involved the University of Texas. They had created a makeshift school um, and said, look, we're providing an education. And uh, the court talked about the intangible qualities of higher education, that the University of Texas with its alumni and its reputation and the quality of its faculty, uh, as well as the large number of students that people would get to interact with, offers a much more superior education than creating uh, just a schoolroom across the, the road in the county court uh, house where someone would get instruction uh, on their own. Uh, so recognizing that equality really means something more than just you get to uh, be taught, but you get to be taught with all the various ways in which an education can be uh, useful. Uh, and then also a case called McLaurin versus Oklahoma, also in June of 1950, uh, where Oklahoma did uh, admit a black student to the university, but segregated him within the university, made him sit in his own place in the classroom, his own place in the library, his own place in the cafeteria. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not providing equal opportunity. People have to enjoy the full status and benefits and interactions that a school has to offer. Uh, three months later, in September 1950, you had a case in downtown Charlottesville called uh, Swanson versus the University of Virginia, Gregory Swanson, who's portrait hangs in the hallway outside. Uh, he had been admitted to the law school here, but uh, the university following uh, the law said uh, he can't attend because we don't allow segregated or integrated teaching. Uh, and in part, applying these two new Supreme Court cases, the federal court in downtown Charlottesville ruled, ruled that Gregory Swanson had to be uh, admitted. So UVA was integrated by its first black student in 1950. That was followed by Walter Ridley uh, and Louise Stokes Hunter, who got the first graduate degrees in 1953 from the education school. Uh, and then, of course, we had Brown versus Board, which led to much broader, uh, at least legal segregation, uh, if not de facto segregation, uh, nationwide. By the way, the law school also graduated its first black student. Um, Gregory Swanson completed his coursework successfully, but didn't complete uh, his um, paper requirement, uh, as was common at the time. John Merchant was the first to graduate from UVA Law School in 1958. So we see you know, at least the dismantling of overt segregation. Uh, but as became clear into the 1960s and 1970s, simply stopping uh, uh, outright exclusion does not make up for the decades and centuries of denying black people the opportunity to develop educational uh, resources in their, in their families and in their communities. Uh, so you continue to see, in part because of the uh, things that um, the video and uh, Professor Robinson talked about, black people not qualifying for uh, higher education in nearly uh, proportion to their numbers. So people started to realize we have to do more than just stop overtly saying no. We have to try and affirmatively admit more people than our current process does. So you started to see affirmative action. 
Uh, and, but uh, as usual, you see pushback. So uh, Bakke in 1978 struck down an affirmative action program at the University of uh, Davis Medical School. Uh, Croson in 1989 applies strict scrutiny to affirmative action, which makes it very difficult uh, to engage in. Uh, uh, Gruder and Gratz in 2003, involving the University of Michigan, struck down the college's affirmative action, and while the law schools was upheld, really a very weak form of affirmative action, which uh, was also allowed in, in the Fisher versus University of Texas case. So you have very weak forms of affirmative action that are uh, very ineffective at producing um, robust diversity in higher education as part of, again, the, the pushback by white supremacist forces to uh, access to education, which education then leads to uh, power and privilege. Uh, of course, we now are facing uh, cases involving Harvard and uh, the University of North Carolina, and with the composition of the court, uh, we are likely to see uh, the invalidation of affirmative action. So we see exclusion, outright exclusion, pre and post Civil War, then you see segregation with inferior opportunities, uh, and then now you're seeing cutback on affirmative efforts to create diversity. So the struggle to access education continues and will continue, uh, but there are strong forces that uh, continue to reassert themselves uh, to deny access to education. Uh, the alternative uh, aspect I want to discuss is, is the content of education. So uh, in schools, when no black people were going to higher education, the schools didn't even think it was worth uh, teaching about uh, the black experience, and to the extent that they did, it was uh, to reinforce white supremacy and black uh, inferiority. Uh, you then had, by the part of the civil rights movement in the uh, 1960s, real advocacy for incorporating the black experience and black uh, uh, history and black studies into the curricula and departments and faculty of higher education. Uh, you see institutes and departments like the Carter G. Woodson Institute here, which only just became uh, its own department uh, a few years ago. Uh, and again, that's great progress. Uh, but uh, as usual, you're seeing pushback. And uh, today, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, you see people uh, pushing back on the idea that we can teach about race in uh, elementary and secondary schools. And also, of course, we see people questioning the teaching of uh, race in higher education as well as you know, divisive, uh, promoting uh, white safe hatred uh, seems to be some of the, uh, uh, the rationales. But if you think about it, uh, if you can't teach about race uh, in the educational context, then what message does that really send? Uh, first of all, it sends a message that the experience of black people uh, does not matter. But it also uh, encourages uh, racism because people will not understand the historical context of the inequalities that are so obvious in our society. Uh, the renowned social psychologist Jennifer Eberhardt at Stanford, who gave a terrific lecture standing at this podium just two years ago for MLK. Uh, she talks about how you know, liberals will often cite disparities, uh, how many black people are incarcerated, how many black people live in poverty, 
uh, uh, the wealth gap. But she says, we have to be careful because if you just cite those disparities to people who don't understand the reason for that, it tends to actually reinforce uh, racist notions. Uh, they showed that like surveys could, uh, if they told people how high the incarceration rates were, and then they gave them a question of whether you wanted to reduce mandatory punishment, people supported heavy punishment after learning about racial disparities in incarceration rates more than if they weren't told that, those statistics. So rather than the statistics make them think there's something wrong with the uh, criminal justice system, it led them to think that actually black people commit more crime and that's why they're in prison and so we gotta keep them there. So she says that can be undone but only through uh, context, only if people understand the why. Uh, and that's why we need to keep race in all levels of education, studying, um, the experience and the uh, historical causes of black inequality, as well as the possible uh, positive aspects of uh, black resistance and, um, and black culture, uh, or else people will look around them and see, in a sense, the statistical disparities that they see by the underrepresentation of people of color in, among their student body, uh, among their faculty, among uh, people in, in power, and conclude that those inequalities that underrepresentation reflects some sort of natural inferiority. So uh, a, a call for us all to continue to uh, struggle uh, in favor of black access to education at all levels and to be able to discuss and inform ourselves, uh, including people of all backgrounds, about the history and present uh, experience of black people. Thank you. <laughs>